when pastors get together at conferences or, or conventions, the, uh, the conversational topics vary greatly from what did you shoot last week to uh, was the fish really that big uh, to how your kids doing, your grandkids doing. One of the topics of conversation that comes up is the state of the church. Uh, all pastors are interested to compare notes to see how things are going in various parts of a state or a region or a country. And inevitably, one of the topics that ends up making an appearance in these conversations is kind of formulated best in, in, in a question. That is, how is it people can spend year after year in great Bible teaching churches but not seem to make much progress in their spiritual maturity? How is it they can have great teaching fed to them every Sunday, but not seem to make much progress spiritually. That is, the individual you know, pastors are thinking of is the kind of individual that doesn't necessarily breathe life into you. It, maybe they're a little negative or critical or condescending or whatever. There's just something about them that doesn't refresh your soul to use the words of the Apostle Paul in positively describing Philemon, interestingly enough. Every, every church has this. This is not a comment about any one individual in our church, but every church has this. There, there are individuals who sit in the preaching, in the service, week after week, year after year, but never seem to be able to push through this where they have a sense of, of vibrancy and they refre refresh the souls of those in the church. It's a question that comes up and it's a question that pastors often talk about when they get together. I would, uh, I would propose to you that there are numerous reasons for this. But one of those reasons I would surmise is that the emotional life has not been addressed in that individual. The emotional life has not been addressed in that individual. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, and he makes a very convicting statement there. He says, he is the one we proclaim, that is, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So it's Paul's desire that the part of the mission of the church is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And I would, I would posit to you that one of the struggles we're going to face in a church in seeing people reach full maturity in Christ is a stunted um, development in emotional growth. Okay. Part of the mission of the church is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Therefore, the church needs to help people deal with anxiety and anger, bitterness, envy. The church needs to help people cultivate things like joy, peace, Contentment. I've become more convinced over the years that one of the reasons people can attend great Bible teaching churches but not seem to make much progress here is that the emotional life has not been addressed. So my overall thesis statement for this three-week series called Feel is this. A biblical handling of the emotions is foundational to spiritual maturity. A biblical handling of the emotions is foundational 
to spiritual maturity. Today we're going to talk about some introductory matters that will hopefully lay a foundation for this. Next week we're going to confront ungodly emotions. Following week we're going to work to cultivate godly emotions. A biblical handling of emotions is foundational to spiritual maturity. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two unhealthy emotional approaches to avoid and three emotionally stabilizing anchors to deploy. I rhymed it for you. Spent hours on that. Make note of it. Two unhealthy emotional approaches to avoid, three emotionally stabilizing anchors to deploy. Okay, first, two unhealthy emotional approaches to avoid. Unhealthy approach number one is disregarding emotion. Unhealthy approach number one, disregarding emotion. From the philosophical side of life, Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics argued that emotions cannot coexist with moral virtue. Therefore, emotions need to be suppressed. The Stoics have a long history of this. Interestingly enough, I think we see an undercurrent of this within the history of Christianity itself. We've seen an undercurrent of Stoicism within Christianity itself, where we're saying the mind is all that matters, we're not going to mess around with emotions because all they do is mess us up. Let's take a minute here to combat this unhealthy approach. One reason we can't ignore, disregard, or devalue emotion is because we would then be ignoring, disregarding, or devaluing a significant aspect of God himself. God is emotional. Okay. By that, I don't mean the way we usually refer to it. We refer to people as emotional. Usually when we use that term, we're thinking of someone who tends to vacillate rapidly from one extreme to another. That's not what I mean. What I mean is God expresses and experiences emotion. Okay. Let me show it to you. Let's look at some examples. First, God loves and delights in his son. God loves and delights in his son. Parents... Um, you probably have experienced at some point some sort of delight in your children. Maybe it wasn't on the way to church this morning, but at some point you experienced some kind of delight in your children. Maybe they accomplished something in sports or school or music or art, and, and it, you, that gave you great joy. Maybe you experienced some kind of delight in your children um, when they uh, showed tenderness of heart towards someone in need. Or they stood for something that was right in the face of opposition. Well, God expresses similar emotion with his son. Take a look at it. Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So here the father's describing the son. The son is going to fulfill the father's purpose. And the father says that his soul delights in his chosen servant. That word delights means to take great pleasure in, to be pleased with. Father is finding great pleasure in, is taking great pleasure in his son. Second, God delights in justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in, in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see it? God delights in, takes pleasure in, love, 
justice and righteousness. His posture towards it isn't merely intellectual. It's emotional. Next, God grieves and experiences sorrow. Ezekiel 6, 9, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. Some of the most difficult pastoral care cases I've ever been involved with have been marital infidelities. Uh, too many uh, I care to count. Um, I remember a few years ago arriving at church on a Sunday morning I was entering the office area. I was greeted by a fellow staffer there. Uh, she looked up at me and she said, Corey and Amanda are sitting in your office. Corey and Amanda are a young couple in their late 20s that I had married a few years earlier. Amanda happened to be the niece of this staffer that was letting me know that. I said to her, okay, Corey and Amanda are in my office. That's interesting. Um, why are they in my office? She said, um, Amanda had an affair. I said, okay. Um, when did Corey find out about it? She said, five minutes ago. Okay. I've been involved with marital infidelity cases before. Never one where the cheated spouse found out five minutes before I'm supposed to go in there and do something with it. So I walk in to my office, their faces are flushed red, tears are dripping off their, their chins, and I looked at Corey, and he looked like he had been shot in the stomach. He looked gut shot, understandably. You can imagine. Read the verse again how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. Adultery does to a spouse what idolatry does to God. God does not respond to idolatry with a mere intellectual assessment that it's wrong. There's a visceral posture towards it. Let's take a positive one, okay? God rejoices in his people. Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Husbands, I don't know if you can think back to your wedding day when you saw your bride standing at the back, getting ready to walk down the aisle. You remember that? Did it overwhelm you with emotion, with joy? It did me. I remember that day. I was captivated. I was transfixed by her. This is the imagery that God uses to describe his emotions over his people. He feels, and he feels deeply. 
Let's look at another one. God expresses compassion. Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Is there a, is there a stronger emotional bond between a woman and the child she's just given birth to? I would put out there, guys, we have no clue what that's like. There, is, there are very few emotional connections stronger than that, than a mother with her newborn child. That emotional bond and connection is, is beyond description. God is saying <laughs> that the bond and compassion he has for his people is even stronger than that. He employs imagery that's just chalked full of emotion. Chalked full of emotion. He feels, and he feels deeply. God is a feeling God. To disregard emotions is to disregard or devalue a big aspect to who God himself is. To disregard emotions is to disregard a significant aspect to who God made us to be as his image bearers, made in his likeness. First unhealthy approach to avoid is disregarding emotion. Second unhealthy approach to avoid is granting emotion sovereignty. On the one hand, disregarding emotion is, is a, uh, something to avoid. Second, granting emotion sovereignty is another unhealthy approach to avoid. One Christian writer, one Christian writer, gives voice to the sovereignty of emotions. He writes this, as a saved person, you can control your mind and your will, but not your feelings. God's plan is for us to believe him and choose to submit ourselves to his loving care and authority regardless of how we feel. You can hear the sovereignty of emotion in that statement. Now listen, Emotions, in that, according to that worldview, are just an outside force that impose their will on you. Maybe you've heard the statement at some point, I can't help the way I feel. I can't control the way I feel. Maybe you've heard that. Italian theologians have a sophisticated term for that statement. Baloney salami. Let me show it to you. John 14, verse 1, Jesus is speaking. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Just stop there for a minute and think about what he's just said. Do not let your hearts be troubled. If emotions are just an external force that impose their will on you, why is it Jesus is asking us to do the impossible? Why is it he's asking us to do the impossible? He's commanding us not to let our hearts be troubled. That word is emotional. It means a deep sense of anxiety. He's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't go there. In other words, Jesus is saying, this emotion is something that should not be passively received. You should push back against it. He's implying then that his followers do possess some control over their experience of this emotion. Jesus would never accept the statement, I can't help the way I feel. He would never accept that. 
In fact, the most frequent command in the Bible for your next Bible trivia dinner party, the most frequent command in the Bible is one that, yeah, it has to do with behavior, it has to do with thinking, but it also is deeply emotional. The most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. The most frequent command in all of Scripture is do not be afraid. One of the verses we love to recite is about this. (laughs) Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Look at that first phrase. Do not be anxious about anything. That's about fear. It's a command. Push back against your anxiety through thankful prayer. There are numerous places in the scripture where we're commanded to rejoice or to be joyful. There are numerous places where we're commanded to love one another. Love is certainly more than emotion, but it's also not less than that. A biblical handling of the emotions is absolutely foundational for spiritual maturity. And these are two unhealthy approaches that we have to avoid, disregarding them or granting them sovereignty. I want to talk next about three emotionally stabilizing anchors to deploy. And as a caveat, as we work into these three, let me say that these are three emotionally stabilizing anchors to deploy daily, maybe hourly, even minutely. Is that a word? It is now. Three emotionally stabilizing anchors to deploy daily. This is not you throw it in the water, you're done, one and done. No, this is every day, every hour, every minute of your life. I think you'll find if you learn to deploy these anchors daily, you will find yourself emotionally stabilized. And as a result of that, you're breathing life into other people instead of sucking it out of them. Let's look at them. Anchor number one, the providence of God. The providence of God. God's providence, so we're clear, is his ruling over the details of all activity, human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. Yes, God is that involved. It is his ruling, his directing, his orchestrating of all details, of all activity, human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. And the providence of God is all over the pages of Scripture. All over the pages of Scripture. Maybe the most clear portrait is painted for us in the story of Esther, which if you have not read in one sitting, let me encourage you to do that sometime this week. In this pastor's opinion, it's the most well-written story in all the Bible, the story of Esther. Um, I don't have time to recount the whole story for you, but suffice it to say that a lot of things had to go exactly right for the story to turn out the way it did. Okay? This is what had to happen. If Xerxes never throws a party and gets roaring drunk, he never makes the request for his wife Vashti to come and show off her beauty for his friends. 
If Vashti is never requested, she never refuses the request. If she doesn't refuse the quest, request, she's not deposed as queen. If she's not deposed as queen, there's no beauty contest to see who takes her place. If there's no beauty contest, Esther never becomes queen. If Esther never becomes queen, Haman's decree goes forward and the Jews are annihilated. If Esther doesn't keep secret her nationality of being a Jew, Haman is never removed from his post. If Haman is never removed from his post, Mordecai is killed. If Mordecai is killed, he never becomes lieutenant of the Persian government. You follow? The Jewish people are spared and blessed because all these details fell into place. That's the providence of God. It's his ruling, directing, orchestrating over the details of all activity, human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. Outside of Scripture, no one has written more vividly on this subject than John Calvin. In his Institutes, on the section of God's providence, he writes this. He says, when dense clouds darken the sky... And a violent tempest arises because a gloomy mist is cast over our eyes. Thunder strikes our ears and all our senses are benumbed with fright. Everything seems to us to be confused and mixed up. You ever been there? Pretty much capture it. This is what he goes on to say. But all the while, a constant quiet and serenity ever remain in heaven. So we must infer that while the disturbances in the world deprive us of judgment, that is, the causes may be hidden from us, God, out of the pure light of his justice and wisdom, tempers and directs these very movements in the best conceived order to a right end. This is God's providence. A little later in the same section, Calvin says this about it. Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things. Patience in adversity. And also incredible freedom from worry about the future. All necessarily follow upon this knowledge. Do you hear the emotional benefits of deploying the anchor of God's providence? You hear it in there? Gratitude of mind. Deploying the anchor of God's providence leads to a state of gratitude. I don't know about you, but some of the most refreshing people I have ever been around are those who seem to be eternally grateful for something. They look around and all they see are, is God's goodness that breathes life into my soul. Calvin says, deploying the anchor of God's providence leads to patience in adversity. Adversity tends to turn us into emotional wrecks. But if we remember that God is orchestrating, directing, ruling over the details of all activity, human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes, you know what? In this point, in this adversity, I'll be patient. I know God's up to something. Finally, freedom from worry about the future. 
is a byproduct of deploying the anchor of God's providence. Let's talk Turkey. One of the reasons you're angry, one of the reasons you're bitter, stressed out, worried, is that you don't really believe this. Not really. At least in the moment you experience this or express it, you don't really, really believe that God is superintending over all activity, human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. One of the reasons you don't have joy or peace is that deep down you don't really believe this. Not really. God's providence is an anchor you need to deploy daily, hourly, minutely, because when you do, whatever storm darkens your sky, I don't care what it is, whatever storm darkens your sky, you will be able to say, God is in this, he's directing this, and will bring about his good purposes in and through it. That's anchor number one. Anchor number two, future glory. Future glory. Your best life, Christian, is yet to come. It's not here yet. Yes, we experience God's grace in this life. We experience some super sweet moments in this life, and it's only by God's grace. But there are seasons, and you know when they are, we walk through them and we feel like we're playing goalie against the devil's javelin team. You know those moments. You felt it. You've experienced it yourself. Fixing your eyes on your eternal inheritance is an anchor. In that moment, you must deploy if you're going to find any kind of emotional stability in the face of that. The Apostle Paul deploys this anchor in Romans 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Memorize that verse. Recite that verse daily. Preach that verse to yourself daily. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Imagine a life so wonderful, it makes the experiences of this life, the worst experiences of this life, a blip on the radar. Ray Ortland illustrates it this way. He says, each of us is like a homeless man who sleeps under a bridge and eats out of dumpsters. One day a limousine pulls up and out steps an attorney who hands him a letter. A long lost uncle has died and left him a fortune. The check will arrive in a few days. Suddenly the cardboard shelter doesn't feel so hopeless. He can live with it for a while longer because vast Fortune is coming. Do you see that by deploying this anchor, you're able to begin to enjoy your future glory right now? Anchor number three, justification. The doctrine of justification is a glorious truth, and I don't want you to miss it. Even if you've got it down pat, I don't want you to miss it. It's a glorious truth. It says a sinner is declared righteous by a holy God through faith alone 
in Christ alone. That is, Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He was impeccably faithful to God's standard. And the climax of his perfectly righteous life was on the cross where Jesus died the death we should have died. By faith, God treats us as if we live the life Jesus lived. You want the gospel in a nutshell. You want this doctrine of justification in a nutshell. Jesus comes into our world. He lives the perfect life we should have lived but failed to. And he dies the death we should have died for failing to live the life we should have lived. And by faith, we get credit for all that Jesus did. There's the doctrine of justification. There is the gospel in a nutshell. Now, you're going to ask, what does this have to do with emotions? Brian Borgman says it, as good as anybody does. He says, if you believe your acceptance with God depends on your performance or your works, if you believe God treats you according to your good or bad conduct, you will be the emotional equivalent of a slinky after a three-year-old has tangled it up. No matter how much dad tries to straighten out the twisted metal coils, it is an irreparable mess. The doctrine of justification is an anchor to deploy daily because it will give you an emotional stability like none other. If you have come to believe in the gospel, if you've come to believe that Jesus came into our world, lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we should have died, if you've come to embrace that, you have been given God's free and full acceptance, and nothing can change that. Nothing. The circumstance you're living through right now that's causing you emotional tumult cannot change the fact that you have God's acceptance full and free because of what Christ has done. Deploy that anchor. Brian Chappell tells a story that helps us understand this anchor a little better. He writes, when my youngest daughter, Katie, went to college, she was determined not to let any fear or anxiety show that would necessitate any kind of reassurance on her parents' part. The day we drove her to college, registered her for classes, moved her stuff into her dorm room, she did nothing but chatter and smile. Even as mom and dad were getting in the car to drive away, her face showed only sunshine. So I gave my final hug. I first held her at arm's length, looked her in the eye and said, Katie, I want you to remember what my father said to me. No matter what happens here, no matter what happens here, whether you do well or poorly, you are mine, and nothing will change that. Our home will always be yours. That did it. The smile vanished. Her face flushed. The bright eyes filled with tears. 
She hugged me hard and said, oh, daddy, you know that's not fair. Of course it's not fair. It's grace. It's grace. Listen, Christian, no matter your performance or your record in this life, if you belong to Jesus, God embraces you, looks you in the eye, and he says, you are mine, and nothing will ever change that, including the circumstances that are causing this emotional storm in your life. Nothing will ever change that. That's an anchor you must deploy daily. Let's pray. Sovereign and loving God, our emotional lives matter to you. You desire to see us get free of anger and anxiety, bitterness, envy. See them replaced with joy and peace contentment. In our efforts to do so, remind us of these three anchors, that you are working all things out for good. You are superintending over all activity in this vast universe to bring about your good purposes. Remind us, Lord, that our best life is yet to come and it's going to be so good that it makes the pain of this life forgettable. God, help us preach to ourselves that nothing can change our full and free acceptance that we have because of Christ. Encourage us with these truths this morning, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. God's people said, Amen. Amen.